Please remain standing as you are able for the reading of God's word. The text for this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. I'll be reading in Danish, and the English translation will be on the screen. Stræb efter at vise kærlighed og søg de åndelige gaver, især den profetiske gave. De, der taler i tunger, henvender sig til Gud og ikke til mennesker, og ingen forstår, hvad de siger. Ved åndens inspiration taler de om ting, der er skjult for den menneskelige forstand. Men de, der taler profetisk, giver styrke, hjælp og trøst til dem, der hører det. De, der taler i tunger, styrker sig selv, men de, der profeterer, styrker menigheden. Jeg vil ønske, at I alle taler i tunger, men endnu hellere, at I alle kunne profetere. Det er nemlig bedre at profetere, end at tale i tunger. Men mindre man også udlægger tungetalen, så hele menigheden kan få gavn af det. Hvis jeg kom på besøg hos jer venner og stod og talte i tunger til jer, hvad vil I få ud af det? Vil I ikke få mere ud af det, hvis jeg med, kom med åbenbaring, et kundskabsbord, et profetisk budskab eller en undervisning? Tænk på et musikinstrument, for eksempel en fløjte eller en harpe. Hvis den ene tone ikke kan skældnes fra den anden, hvordan kan den så komme en melodi ud af det? Hvis en hornblæser giver et uklart signal, vil soldaterne så gøre sig klar til kamp? På samme måde med jer, hvis I taler i tunger, uden at komme med et klart budskab, hvordan kan man så forstå, hvad I siger? Det er som at tale ud i luften. Der findes en mangfoldighed af sprog i verden, og de giver alle god mening for dem, der kender sproget. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning, church, children. A uh, few pre-K may be dismissed for uh, some Sunday school. You uh, reminder for the parents to pick up your kids either right before or right after you take uh, communion from uh, Children's Church. If I've never met you before, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity City Church. We are nearing the end of a sermon series on the book of 1 Corinthians, including today's message. We only have three Sundays left. Uh, a couple more in chapter 14, and then we skip ahead to finish in chapter 16, because uh, if you remember around the season of Easter, we did uh, three sermons in chapter 15, so we skipped around a little bit. And then uh, we will switch to a sermon series we typically do in the summer called Summer in the Psalms. We'll be preaching through another 10 psalms this summer, Psalms 71 through 80, and that would be begin on July 3rd. You noted, if you were here for the announcement, that July 3rd we will not be gathering here in this space. We're going to gather with other free churches uh, at a different location, a different free church uh, on the east side of St. Paul. The, the free church is called Pain Free Church, uh, so they give you Advil on the way in. Uh, so Pain Free Church, with, that's Pain Avenue Free Church. We are gathering there with some other church plants. Uh, Trinity uh, will be contributing to music during that time. There's a church planner that's planning a free church that's actually a house church in, uh, in Highland Park. He'll be giving the message, and uh, then Payne uh, Evangelical Free Church will be hosting. So uh, that's on July 3rd. Uh, so if you're in town, we encourage you to gather uh, with everybody over there. I will also be recording a reflection on Psalm 71, especially for folks that might be traveling for the 4th of July weekend. And uh, so there will also, in addition to gathering with that church, there will be a message online uh, on Psalm 71. So that's something uh, to look, look forward to when July 3rd gets here. Let's go ahead and pray and dive into the text today. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I am always grateful for this gathering and the people that come here, the stories that they bring here, the, the burdens and joys that they're experiencing in this moment. And now with anticipation, Lord, these saints, these brothers and sisters, your sons and daughters want to hear from you and your word and to hear maybe how that applies to their life, especially what the purpose of what we're doing right now is. When Christians gather in the name of Jesus, what are we doing? What should be our focus? What should be the purpose, Lord? And we want to hear that from you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're reading the scripture uh, reading this morning on the screen, you'll find out that the text today shows us that the church in Corinth, the Corinthian church, is a charismatic church. Uh, they're a church that regularly spoke in tongues, uh, and if you don't know what that is, if that's not a term familiar to you, it's when uh, Christians will pray or praise God in a language that nobody would understand, and in a private uh, conversation through prayer or praise with the Lord, and this is something that the Corinthian church regularly participated in. Now, when you hear something like a charismatic church, I know some of you have different experiences, maybe different perspective on whether or not that is a good or a bad thing, or maybe even whether or not you've been exposed to a charismatic ministry or a charismatic church. So maybe just by the show of hands, how many of you have been uh, a part of or experienced in a charismatic church before? Go ahead, raise your hands. Now, there's some people here that have been a part of a charismatic church, but because they didn't want to be thought of as charismatic, they did not raise their hand right there. So for those of you that did and were honest with me, I appreciate that, uh, and that might have been uh, why you were comfortable raising your hand in the first place. Now, you might be even thinking to yourself, uh, what type of experience do I have speaking about a topic like this? Um, and many people meet me in my Scandinavian heritage. I don't strike people as a particularly charismatic individual. My church background, I grew up Lutheran, like many people in Minnesota did. Uh, during college, I went to a Baptist church, and since seminary up until this part, part, part of my life when I'm pastoring, have been part of the Free Church. But in late high school, although I never formally was part of a charismatic church, I was exposed and participated in a charismatic youth ministry with a high school buddy of mine. He and I used to get in all kinds of trouble uh, in early high school, but he was part of a charismatic church. His parents were charismatic Christians, and so they would always send us to rallies and revivals and youth group and youth camps in hopes to wake us out of our stupid teenage slumber uh, so maybe that we would care more about the things of the Lord. So I would be exposed to those things quite regularly. And I remember a couple weeks ago, I shared with you a story uh, in relation to getting gifts from the Lord about a particular experience that I had where the Spirit descended upon me. And from that moment, I had this, this really intense spiritual experience. And from that moment, the trajectory of my life changed in terms of uh, eventually becoming a pastor, uh, being uh, gifted from the Holy Spirit with the, the gift of teaching and, and, and uh, a passion for theology. One thing I don't typically uh, say about that story, but it's true, that in that moment, this would have been the summer before my junior year of high school, when that happened was a time that I did indeed speak in tongues. 
I spoke in tongues in that moment. It was a private uh, prayer where it was just me. It wasn't in front of the, the, the assembly of the, the youth camp that I was at when this happened. And it's a unique thing because I've never done it before. And then that was the only time it happened, and it's never happened again. I'm open to it. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm definitely saying, Lord, if you want to do it again, that was great. Loved it. Would do it again. But there was just this unique encounter with the Holy Spirit that happened there that changed the trajectory of my life. And part of that experience was speaking in tongues. Now I can talk to other people, and I have also a memory of, of folks that maybe have more of a negative experience with charismatic background. I remember a youth leader, no, not a youth leader, a small group leader of mine when I was going to seminary. He was the a small group leader of the church I was attending, he told a story about being in a setting like this where there was such peer pressure on him to speak in tongues that he faked it. Uh, so I don't know where that ranks in terms of like how the Lord felt about that, but he was just like, these folks won't let me out of the building unless I speak in tongues. I'm not doing it. I don't know how. So he faked it. All right. So that's another experience that maybe folks have had with a church maybe like the Corinthian church. In the Corinthian church, yes, they were charismatic and they expressed their participation in the life of the Spirit by speaking in tongues, but what seems to have happened in this church setting specifically is that became the center of their church experience, the center of their corporate worship. When they came together, that's what it became all about. And Paul is going to take issue with when we make anything other than Christ or our triune God the center of worship. He is going to remind us, uh, although these expressions of the gifts are good things, they don't belong in the center of what it means to gather as a Christian church. And he's going to unpack at least two other purposes that are more important than the expression of gifts in the church, especially gifts that are personal and spiritual. So let's look at what he says are, the first, are, are these two purposes of the gathered church and maybe what we can learn from this case study about what was going on in this particularly charismatic setting and maybe apply it to a church like this that's probably not known much for our charisma, all right? So let's see what happens here. Look at verse 1. Let's start at the top. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Now, Paul has been dealing with, in the last several chapters, the church gathering for worship, much like this gathering here. When Christians gather for corporate worship, they are to use their diverse gifts to build one another up in love. Last chapter, chapter 13, unpacks the reality that none of our gifts matter if we're not participating in the life of the church motivated by love for one another. In fact, most of our gifts may go away someday, but love, the greatest gift, will always remain. So when we gather to worship Jesus, we are following the way of love, especially how we utilize our gifts to build up one another in the church. However, and this is what Paul is going to be making a point of, when we gather, sometimes that central point of corporate worship is set to the side for other things. And he highlights the gift of prophecy is a gift that can be utilized in a unique way for the benefit of the gathered church. And why does that gift uh, become more unique than something like speaking in tongues? Let's look at verses 2 through 5. 
For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. So these verses start to compare and contrast tongues, the gift of tongues, with the gift of prophecy. Tongues, as I already said, is a way of speaking to God the mysteries by the Spirit that results in one's own edification. It's a mysterious language that, that the person speaking and the people who are listening do not know, but it's one that is a type of encounter with the Spirit, an expression of the gift that edifies the person who is participating in this gift. It's a personal prayer or praise in an unknown language that blesses that person's faith. And when someone hears another person speaking in tongues, Paul says it's not helpful to others because no one knows what is being said. Prophecy, on the other hand, is, a, is given a reflection based on Scripture to God's people in order to encourage and edify the church. This is not about telling people about future events. In this text, it's a corporate exhortation from God's Word communicated in an understandable way that blesses your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when others hear a prophecy, it's helpful because you do know what is being said. Paul asks this question in verse 6, Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? In other words, what he's saying is if you come to the gathered church and you're speaking in tongues, it's not helpful because no one knows what is being said. But if someone comes to the gathered church with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction, then this express gift is a good gift because the purpose of the church is to build one another up. And the way that you do that is in a way that other people can hear and understand and therefore be blessed by God's word. So in this text, prophecy is, the, is a gift that can edify the church in an understandable way. And he talks about different expressions of that. That's why I think when he uses the word prophecy, he probably uses it as like kind of a, a word that encompasses different ways of expressing a similar gift for a similar end. To apply it to maybe our Sunday gathering, this type of gift is something that could be expressed in a call to worship, a prayer, singing a hymn, giving a testimony or a devotional, or preaching a sermon. That could all be examples of what Paul likely means by prophecy. But he's making the point, again, that this can't happen through speaking in tongues because that only edifies the one that's speaking in tongues rather than the gathered church. He starts to illustrate in verses 7 through 11 why this is so important. Look at verses 7 through 11 with me. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as a pipe or a harp, how will anyone know what, what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. 
Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So Paul uses three illustrations here to prove his point. Musical instruments is one, a military horn is another one, and human languages is the third. So he's saying when you use a pipe or a harp, or any other type of musical instrument, you could say an accordion if that's your thing, all right? You can, you can substitute here. And that makes a sound, that instrument makes a sound. It can't be this random sound making that's disorderly. But the melody must be ordered, otherwise the listener will not understand the tune. Or a trumpet that calls soldiers to battle. It must be a clear call, otherwise no one will be prepare for the mission. Or he says, the languages of the world, they are diverse and beautiful, and they communicate meaningful things. However, if someone does not know the language, then it's impossible to understand what is being said. And then he drives home his point again in verse 12. So it is with you. Since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. Because again, what seems to be happening here is there's this eagerness to have gifts of the Spirit, but the ones that they are starting to focus on are the ones that edify self, but don't build up the church in their corporate gathering. And so you go into a church gathering, and it's just confusing, and it's chaotic, and brothers and sisters in Christ are not edified because the focus is on self and self only. He continues to make this point in verses 13 through 17. For this reason... The one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving? since they do not know what you are saying. You are giving thanks well enough, but no one is edified. So here we get more details. When speaking in tongues, one mind, one's mind is neutral because it's mainly about a spiritual experience that occurs when somebody is praying or praising God. Prophecy or teaching, on the other hand, is when one's mind is engaged so that the Holy Spirit speaks through you for the benefit of others. When someone speaks in tongues, the only way it's beneficial, Paul says, is if it's interpreted so that someone else may know what's going on and therefore be edified. That's why Paul grants the one expectation to speaking in tongues. If you do praise or pray God in, to God in a different tongue, then you need to either interpret that yourself for the benefit of others or somebody else needs to explain what you are saying. Now, this text is not saying, and this passage is not saying that speaking in tongues is selfish, whereas prophecy or any form of Bible-based encouragement is better in every single context. Remember, Paul is dealing with the context of the gathered church, a corporate gathering like this. He's not addressing the context of maybe somebody's daily prayers, personal devotions, or private conversations with the Lord, where Paul would say speaking in tongues in such a context is great. Paul says that he speaks 
in tongues. And I would say even throughout my years of pastoring at Trinity, many have assembled here with that gift, and that's something that I would want to encourage and not discourage. Speaking in tongues is a good thing. And if, and if it's used as a gift in the appropriate set, setting, it's a wonderful expression and a beautiful gift. And we all should desire to have it. Now, our local church is not one that struggles like the church in Corinth with putting this gift at the center of our worship. It's not a problem here. We're not a church that needs to tone down our charismatic expression. I was thinking about that with verse 16 where it says, if you're speaking in tongues, how, how can somebody give you amen? You need to prophesy, you need to teach, you need to say something about the gospel in a way that understands and relates to people's heart so that the Holy Spirit can stir up our hearts and then somebody can respond with like, amen, bring it preacher. But one of the things I know, because you've given me feedback about this before, is I don't expect any amens here, so I just keep preaching. So you, there's, there's some brothers here that I've always been like, can you pause every once in a while? Because I'm like, you know, I'm kind of shy about giving amen, but I feel like I should do it, but then you just kind of keep on going, right? So this is, this is not a church that is known for being extra charismatic, extra expressive. I remember talking to a brother earlier this week that he's like, I don't like it when we clap. I know Josiah's trying to get us to clap, but I don't, I don't know how I feel about that, right? I don't know if I'm down with the clapping, right? That's our issue, all right? So it doesn't seem like it's a very relatable point at this, at this juncture with the text, right? And I would, I would pause to say this, too, because I think if, if one thing that we can learn from this text with how Paul says that this is a completely normal way of being charismatically expressive in the corporate gathering. This church in Corinth was doing it in an excessive way that was unhelpful, but maybe a church like us needs to lean into it a little bit. Amen, church? Yeah, right? I think, I think maybe we could, we could get a little bit more expressive, get a little bit more excited because we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified on the cross, raised from the dead, and He is still alive and at work in our church today. Amen, church? That's right. So I think we could lean into that a little bit because one of the things that we know and we believe that goes down in this church when we assemble is that the Spirit is here. This is not just an intellectual exercise. This is not just a, a religious organization doing religious things. The Spirit who is alive and at work in the world is alive and at work in this assembly in a way that's deeply real and tangible and exciting. And it's something to get a little, a little loud about every once in a while. And that's something that I think that we as a church and me as a pastor can grow in and lean into as well. So how do we think about this and relate to this passage then if our problem isn't putting charismatic gifts at the center of our worship? How can we relate it to our context? Well, let's remind ourselves again of Paul's point. He keeps driving it home. Look at verses 18 through 19. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than, any, than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So if someone was keeping count for who speaks in tongues more than anybody, Paul says, I would win that context. Paul is a professional. He's in the professional leagues when it comes to speaking in tongues. So based on the standards of what those in the Church of Corinth value, Paul could step into the role of celebrity pastor just based on how often and well he speaks in tongues. 
Well, Paul reminds them that's not his goal. That's not what he's all about. His goal is to build up the church in love through words of truth that the congregation can understand. For Paul, speaking five words of gospel truth that somebody can understand is much better than 10,000 words that are not understandable. That's the point. So if you find yourself in a church that doesn't particularly struggle with uh, making the expression of charismatic gifts the center of their worship, I still think that we need to remind ourselves that you can still speak unintelligible words without speaking in tongues. You can, also, you, can, you, can, you can be sound really, really religious in a way that nobody understands, including people that grow up in the church. Let me share uh, a story with you of well, how this can look. Uh, in college, this was back when I, I met my now wife, uh, Tracy, and, and as we were dating and, and we were also getting to know one another and growing in the faith, uh, one of the things we started to do is to pray together. And one of the things she would tell me uh, later is that she, in, in, the, in those days, my Bible college days, she didn't like to pray with me, would, would just vote no, would pass on it, right? And I was just like, why? Like, are you, you're not spiritual? Like, should I be worried? Should we, should we break up? Like, why, why don't you like to pray with me? And she said it's because it's the way that you do pray. You pray like you're reading a systematic theology. You pray like you're, you've memorized the King James Version Bible. You, you pray like a scholar but you don't pray like you're talking to the living God, who's not only your Lord, but also your friend. And she had a point there. It was such lofty language that it was over everybody's head. It seemed unapproachable, in a sense, unintelligible. And one of the things I think Paul would say to somebody that's really into theology like that, or a church that leans an academic or intellectual direction, it's like, I could speak in highly technical and scholarly words related to theology. If, that, if, that, if that's a gift for you, that's great. If you understand that jargon, that's a wonderful thing, right? And I'm one of those people. I can warn you about over-realized eschatology and warn you about the eternal subordination of the sun. Like, I can play that game. I understand it, right? But what Paul would probably say to us that are intellectual with the faith is that it's better to preach five intelligible words related to the gospel than 10,000 words in lofty religious language. You can still be a church that doesn't regularly speak in tongues and say things that nobody relates to because, because it's so lofty and religious. On the other hand, I would say this. Your language may be clear, but we also have to be careful that we don't so tone down doctrine and theology that we don't edify one another because it's not based on the scriptures anymore, but maybe a pop psychology help or something like that. We have to remember that when we are edifying one another, we are doing so with God's word. And one of the things that I was thinking of about how to apply that uh, to different types of setting is through music, because if you were listening along, one of the ways that we praise God is through song. And we respond to songs with amen and, and expressions of gratitude and, 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 and that sort of thing. So music is a big way that we edify one another with God's word. It's not just preaching or not just a call to worship or a devotional. We also want to sing God's word to one another so that we are edifying one another. But sometimes the types of music that, are, that is sung in church settings is totally awful. And I was trying to think, I actually thought of a lot of examples, but one of the, 
the risks I take in quoting an actual song is making some folks very mad because it might be a song you really, really like. But one of the things you see, uh, and often people um, uh, observe this point, is, is, is doing so by, by making skits about how bad Christian, especially maybe contemporary Christian music can be. And it reminded me of a, a video that a different church made that was, was a parody song that talked about how sometimes we sing things that are so unintelligible from what the gospel actually is that it doesn't make sense. It's just like, what are we actually singing about? Is it the gospel? Is like Jesus my prom date? Like, what are we singing about here, right? And so I'll quote from a made-up song so I don't make anybody upset, but what you would be surprised to see, you probably hear is like, that actually sounds like a song that could be sung in a church nowadays. So here's the made-up song. Here's some of the lyrics. I'm not going to read all the lyrics from this particular parody song, but here are the lyrics. Bring me to the altar, I lift my hands and bow my knees, and take me to the cross, I pray my heart will never freeze. So far, off to a fine start. Not great, but it's okay. No heresy to be detected. Verse 2, bring me to the water, the flowing rapids carry me, salty ocean waves crash, <laughs> trickling into my heart's sea. And here's another random verse, mountains, rivers, oceans, sand, I'm on a road trip to the promised land. And here's the chorus, if you're really getting drawn into this. Your grace is wonderful to me. Drown me in your grace, God. I hope my grace is graceful. And now in the parody, they're singing this song, and they're really getting into it. Like one person's like, this is my favorite song. You know, my grandma loves that verse. And, and the other person, who's a friend that's going to church, she's, she's just like, she, especially during that, that, that verse, like, drown me in your grace. I don't know what that means. She says to her friends, like, what does it mean to be drowned in somebody's God's grace? And the response of the person is just, don't think about it. It doesn't need to make sense. Just sing, right? And that's sometimes the experience. And that's an unintelligible way of encountering the gospel through music. We can be so gibberish with religious language that we don't actually understand what we're singing about anymore. And so even in a church, and maybe the center point of uh, what we do isn't a struggle with charismatic expressions of gifts like speaking in tongues, there's still ways that churches can make the gospel unrelatable, un you can't understand it, even to a congregation where there are Christians who are longing to be edified. Now, that's not the only purpose of a gathering like this. It's a big purpose because when churches gather, there are saints here, brothers and sisters in Christ who know the Lord, they are longing to be edified. But one of the things that Paul will now go on for verses 20 and following is to mention that it's not only Christians that typically gather in settings like this. There's also people that are kind of on the fence. They're inquiring. They might be skeptics. There might even be people in any given service that don't believe in Jesus. They're just simply here exploring. And he will now make the point that it's especially important to be hospitable to those guests in relation to making sure the gospel is clear. Let's see how he unpacks it in verses 20 through 22. He says, Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. But even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is, for, is not for unbelievers but for believers. So Paul's saying this. 
To make spiritual experience for the benefit of self the center of corporate worship is childish. It's childish thinking. It's immature. And he says mature thinking is building up the church in love and focusing on the gifts that do that for corporate worship, not just for the sake of those who believe, but also for those who don't believe. He goes on in verse 21 to quote a passage from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. And in the context of that verse, it's a, it's a story and it's a, it's a prophecy about God bringing judgment to his people through uh, a foreign army. And that foreign army does not speak the language of God's people. Thus, not understanding the language in this context is the sign of God's judgment on his people. If you can't hear or understand God's word anymore, it's a sign of judgment. That's the point that he's making. And then verse 22 is probably one of the most difficult verses in not only this section, but maybe in the book of 1 Corinthians, because it appears to say the opposite of what I'm about to read in verses 23 through 25. And perhaps this is what the verse is saying, is that speaking in tongues is a sign for unbelievers, but not a positive one for them. It's a sign of God's judgment from their mouths on God's people, where prophecy, on the other hand, is primarily for God's people so that they may hear from the Lord, but also then through them bless the nations, including those that do not understand the gospel yet. So he unpacks those in verses 23 and following. He says, so... If the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say, you're out of your mind, right? So this is something that he wants them to be sensitive to. You're gathering and assuming that there's folks here, they're skeptics, they're not on the same page, they're inquiring about the things of the Lord, right? And they're here and one of the things he wants them to be sensitive to, to understand, is that how you are conducting your worship gathering matters to them and your witness to them as well. They might think the way that you conduct worship is something that's just crazy and they don't want anything to do with it. Again, how do we apply this principle that Paul's saying to a setting where being in a charismatic frenzy isn't something that describes your church? And again, I would say you can still speak unintelligible words to those outside the church without speaking in tongues. You can still make the gospel unrelatable to those outside the church without speaking in tongues. And, and in Christian settings, we have a word for this, and sometimes maybe those outside the church have a word for this. It's when Christians speak what? Christianese. Right? It's not even scripture-based language per se. It's, it's idioms and phrases that are unique to particular subcultures of churches that normal, maybe global Christians, or even especially those outside the church, have no idea what you're talking about. I was, uh, I was trying to uh, think about different uh, phrases that I, that I know and trying to, um, yeah, trying to think about other ones. So I was going to different websites to try, try to remind myself, like, what, what are, like, Christian phrases that we, we use, but that's hard to translate for others that don't know what that phrase means? And there's this website that came up with a hilarious list with the translation of the Christianese. So you might be in a religious setting, and somebody says, if it be God's will, right? That's a phrase that they utter, like, like you might ask them a question and they're like, I don't know, it must, if, if it be God's will. The translation of that is they mean, I really don't think God is going to answer this one. That's what it means. I, I don't know, whatever God's will is, it means I don't know what God's going to do. 
Here's some more Christianese. Someone might say, that's not my spiritual gift. The translation of that is find somebody else to do it. <laughs> Here's some more Christianese. The Lord works in mysterious ways, uh, by which the person means I'm totally clueless. I don't know. I don't know what that passage means. The Lord works in mysterious ways. A religious person might feel, say something like, I don't feel led, which means you can't make me do it, right? <laughs> a religious person might say, I feel unsettled in my spirit about that person, which means I can't stand the jerk. <laughs> A religious person might be saying, I'll be praying for you, which translated means there's an outside chance I'll remember this conversation later today. <laughs> a religious person might say, you, you just have to put it in God's hands, which means, the translations, don't expect any help from me. Or if a pastor says in his sermon, in conclusion, the translation is, of that is, I'll be done in another hour or so, Okay. So this is Christianese. This is like stuff that's in a religious culture that you might know very, very well and what you mean, but for those especially outside the church, they have no idea what you're talking about. And I think one of our goals as a church and church leaders should be that one of the ways that we do church, whether it's in a small group, in a large gathering like this, is that we do it in such a way that we remind ourselves that we're not only ministering to one another, but we're ministering to our neighbors. We want to be a church for those who don't go to church. I want to be a pastor for those who don't have a pastor who are looking into the gospel and that we want to make sure that we communicate the gospel in a clear way to those outside the church in a way that we're not unnecessarily dividing or offending anybody and that we display how the gospel is able to answer what is wrong with the world and is the fulfillment of every true hope and desire that one has including those that don't believe in Jesus yet. Yet, on the other hand, that doesn't mean we abandon talking in a distinctively Christian way. We do want to make the gospel understandable and nothing else. We want the gospel to be something that those both within the church and outside the church hear loud and clear. I heard a theologian earlier this week talk about the distinction between language and vocabulary. We want to use language that's relatable to those outside the church, but continue to use distinctively Christian vocabulary. So maybe ditch the Christianese, but still use vocabulary like trinity, atonement, incarnation, fellowship, resurrection, because these are distinct words that we want to unpack not only for your hearts, but there are important biblical and theological categories for those of you that might be here and you're trying to figure out these things and we want to expose you to deep and rich realities of the gospel. We want to make it understandable, but we don't want to dumb it down to the point that there's nothing left of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's why our language will be relatable, but our vocabulary will continue to be distinctively Christian. Because at the end of the day, and this is one of those things where like it's good to be, if you might be here this morning and you're just, you're not there, you don't believe in the gospel, like what are our intentions here? Like what would our desire for you to be here? And, and Paul makes that clear in verses 24 through 25. He says, but if an unbeliever or an acquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin. So they're prophesying, meaning that they're, they're talking about the gospel in an understandable way. The unbeliever, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all 
as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship, exclaiming, God is really among you. That's the goal. And I know for many of the people that I've led to the Lord over the years and being a pastor to many folks that don't have a pastor, I know that if, if, if you're leaning in and there's a curiosity about that, that maybe this is real, wouldn't you want that to happen to you if what we're preaching is true and real? Wouldn't you want more than, than just like religious catchphrases? Maybe a memorable sermon that's like practical and like in like in like normal ways that you could hear in a, a TED talk. Wouldn't you want more than that? Because if we really believe in the death and resurrection of King Jesus and he's alive and well and that he forgives sins and raises the dead and makes all things new and breaks the bonds of injustice, that's what we believe. Wouldn't you want to experience the power of that gospel while you're here? Not just understand it, but expose to it in a powerful way. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, and you're exposed to it in such a way that this is the description that what happens to your heart. He says that you are laid bare. If you are here and God is real and he knows everything about you, you can't hide from him. You can't hide from him. You can't, you can't hide sin from him. You can't hide thoughts from him. He knows who you are. And he knows you deeper than you know yourself. And when that power comes into your heart, you will be laid bare, exposed, put in the light. It's a scary thing, but it's also a beautiful thing because every Christian has went through that experience of being exposed to the gospel in such a way that we were laid bare lay bare of all of our sins, all of our shortcomings, and then the grace of God and the forgiveness of God came to us because we called for him to rescue us. And so when you come to a church gathering here, that's the power of the gospel at work. If you're feeling something very uncomfortable because the Spirit is convicting you, that is the Spirit at work laying you bare, exposing you to your sins and maybe the sins of this world and showing you that the only hope is that God needs to be among you. And you need to be in a place where you sense his spirit in such a heavy way that the only appropriate response is that you fall on your knees, whether literally or in your heart, because you say that this God is real. This is not an opinion about religion. This is the truth about who God is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and that his Holy Spirit is here. He's laying me bare. He's raising my dead faith to life. And now my only, my only response that I can muster is to declare that God is really among this assembly and he deserves my devotion and my life, and I'm going to get into the waters of baptism and declare that to the world. And I pray that if there's someone here today that is a skeptic, an unbeliever, that you would respond to that power that is at work in this assembly. Or maybe even if you're a prodigal and you've been away from the faith, but now you're here and you've already been baptized, that you would come back to this table and declare through this table that God is here. He's among you and that you would lay down your life in worship. That is why we gather as a church. Can I get an amen? amen. All right, see, we're all growing together.